Before we come to our time of the message this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer and just be grateful and remembering. Father, we come this morning so thankful that we live in a land where we enjoy freedom, where we enjoy peace, where we enjoy uh, safety, where we enjoy prosperity. None of these have come cheaply or easily. They have come by the lives of those, some who have given all, and by all of these who have given some in serving our nation. So, Father, we are grateful. We thank them and we thank you for giving these ones to us who have given so much. Father, we ask that you would help us as a nation and as people, as individuals here this morning, that we would be grateful. And because of that gratitude that we would, we would be changed, that we would appreciate freedom we would appreciate our safety and prosperity and that we would use it well. That we would live honorably. That we would honor you with our lives. That we would live upright and godly lives in this present age. So Father, thank you for this day that calls us to remember. And now in these moments as we come and we open your word, I pray that you would meet us here and teach us instruct us. May we have hearts that are receptive and minds that are attentive. And Father, may you do your work in us through your word. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is a holiday weekend and I know that for many of you that means that already you have, some of you are here this morning because you've traveled in. Uh, Some of you have family that has come into town, you've been busy, and and uh, others of you, it just means that you've had extra time to work on projects and you spent all day yesterday working and you're exhausted. I know that because I was talking to someone this morning who just said, Pastor, I, you know, don't be offended if I kind of nod off a little this morning. It's been a busy, busy weekend and I, I get it. Uh, I always understand. I, many of you have mentioned over the you know, over the years that, uh, <laughs> you know, Pastor, I'm sorry, I was falling asleep today. I, you know, no big deal. I get it. If you need to sleep, go ahead. You don't bother me. You know, I, I, um, I remember reading a study not long ago that said, you know, if you took all the people in church who have ever fallen asleep in church and laid them down end to end, they would be a lot more comfortable. So, uh, <laughs> If you need to, you know, sleep, but we've taken those barriers down, you know, so we've got a little more, spread out a little more in the sanctuary, and you can, you know, lay down if you have to. Just don't snore. That's all I ask. Well, uh, we just finished a series uh, over the last seven weeks looking at, we call it This We Believe, looking at our doctrinal statement, our statement of faith as a church just revisiting our foundation, and that's been a valuable study. Two weeks ago, as we were looking at the sixth of our seven statements of faith, uh, which has to do with the church, and I'll just review it right here, uh, it says, the church is the body of Christ 
comprised of all those who have been born again by faith in Jesus Christ. And its mission is to disciple all nations, presenting the gospel to them. As we reviewed that, and we noted that it deals with the universal church, as it says in the Apostles' Creed, the Catholic church, and that means that word simply means, in its generic sense, it means the universal church. I said that we want to come back and revisit this in two weeks. So we finished our series, This Is That Day, we're coming back, and I want to revisit this issue of the church. Because, as we noted two weeks ago, Jesus loves the church. He loves the church because, as Acts 20, verse 28 says, He bought it with His own blood. We noted as well that Jesus loves the church. He is passionate about the church as a husband is for a bride because the Bible tells us that the church is the bride of Christ. We see that in in Revelation 19. We see it in Ephesians chapter 5 as well. The church is His bride. We noted again a couple of weeks ago that the word in our Bibles, the word church, translated from the Greek word ecclesia. And that word ecclesia or church literally means or is literally translated the called out one. And it refers to, as we were talking a couple of weeks ago here in our statement, it refers to all those who have been called out by Jesus Christ, all who have been saved by Christ as they put their faith in Christ. They are saved from sin, saved from a sin-filled life, given new life, given eternal life, all of that by trusting in Jesus. If you're here this morning, there's nothing more... That, and you've never put your faith in Christ, nothing important, more important for you to hear or to know that God loves you. And God sent Jesus to pay the penalty of your sin. And He calls for you to put your faith and trust in Him, to be saved from the penalty of sin, which is hell, and have eternal life in Christ and new life now. That's the message of the Gospel. But this This statement, as it talks about the church, talks about the church, as I mentioned, as the as the universal church, the church that is composed of everyone, of all who have been saved through Christ. It crosses the lines of geography, of national borders. It crosses the lines and the boundaries of ethnicities. It crosses the boundaries of continents. It crosses the boundaries of languages. It even crosses the boundaries of the ages spanning from everyone from the time who has believed in Christ from the, the time that Christ was here until He returns. That is the universal church. We noted also what Jesus announced to His disciples in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18 where Jesus said, I will build My church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's where Jesus announced that this thing, this marvelous thing called the church, was going to come into being. He was going to build it. And He added to that, it's going to be unstoppable. The gates of hell will not prevent it. It will advance. It will occur. 
He is going to make it happen. Jesus' purpose in this age, we noted, is to build His church. That's what He said. I'm going to do it. Critical to the accomplishment of this purpose of Christ, to build His church, critical to that is another usage of this word ecclesia, the word that's translated in our Bible's church. You see, in our statement, and this is why I wanted to come back to it, in our statement it's referring here to the universal church. But when we go to the New Testament, of the 115 times that this word ecclesia is used in the New Testament, over 90 of those times that it's used, it's referring not to the universal church, but rather it's referring to a local gathering of believers in Christ, the local assembly of believers in Christ, what we would call the local church, like the chapel of the lake. And that's what I wanted to bring our attention back to. You see, we mentioned a couple of weeks ago that in our day and time, in our culture, overall Christians have a growing or a decreasing, maybe that's a better way to say it, a decreasing value or estimation of the church. Just a couple of months ago, Gallup released the results of of some polling. And what they said was their, their latest polling revealed something very monumental, something that has never happened before in the history, at least, of of their polling, if not in the history of our country. I believe it's unique in the history since we have been a nation. And that is that church membership in the United States, the number of people who are members of churches, has fallen below 50% of the population. Did you see that poll a while back? That is new. But it reflects something that people have known for a long time. Over the last 50 years, polling has shown church membership declining. That's not good news, but the news actually gets worse because among professing believers in Christ, those who say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm a Christian, not only are fewer and fewer of them members of churches, but we have noticed over the, over the last half a century, church attendance continuing to decline. Fewer American Christians attend church, fewer, and they attend church less regularly, and they attend church even less, with less frequency as well. See, American Christians value the church less and less every year. Fewer of us who say, I'm a follower of Christ, are in church today than were a year ago. And of those who do attend church, they go less regularly. While believers used to go to church back in the 1950s, on average, every Sunday morning, and often Sunday nights, and often Wednesday nights, And then it got down to they're only going on Sunday morning. And now it's they're not every Sunday morning. It's on average two or three times per month. 
with less regularity and with less frequency. So I thought it important that we come back this morning to revisit this concern of the church, not just universal, but to talk about the church local. And together look at the scriptures to see, does the church really matter? Not just the church universal, where we can say, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ and I am part of His church, but really all we need is Jesus and me and maybe the Word. Or my tablet where I can watch church on TV whenever I get around to it. Does the local church really matter? And so this morning, I want to say that first of all, as the chapel, we believe in the value and the priority and the importance of the local church. And that's not just because we're trying to stay in business. We really, we, we believe that whether you come to the Chapel of the Lake or not, whether anybody comes to the Chapel of the Lake or not, we believe in the value and the priority of the local church. And I also believe, and I hope to show us this morning through a couple of passages of Scripture, I believe that it is essential for Christians to be connected with a local church, meaning that there's a local church where you know the people and the people know you. You're connected with the people there. You're interacting with them. Not only are you connected with them, but you're committed to them. That a, a, It's essential for a believer to be committed to a local church. That means that you are signed up. That means you are obligated to. You've got your roots down. There is accountability. There is connection and commitment. We might say they're members. How significant that we just added two more members today, okay? Why does church membership matter? That's part of this, this morning. Thirdly, that it's essential for Christians, for believers in Christ, to not only be connected with a church, committed to a church, but to be active in a local church. Active means that you're present, you show up. And not that you just show up, but that you're involved. So, let's look at Scripture. Just two passages this morning. We'll begin in Hebrews chapter 10. I encourage you to take a Bible and turn there if you would. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. The first thing that I want us to note this morning, why church matters. And again, I'm just going to give two reasons why church matters from two passages. There are others we could do. Uh, the hard thing this morning was to kind of narrow it down to just what can I say in a short time. First thing I want us to note, we are commanded to value the local church. We're commanded to value the local church. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. Let's read it together. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, 
but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Here in this text, we are commanded to value the local church. Let me note four things in this. First, it says, don't neglect. The very fact that there is a command here in the Word of God not to neglect getting together in the local church tells me that there is a propensity, a tendency for us to do that. Otherwise, God wouldn't waste the space on the page. He recognizes that there's going to be a tendency for you and me to get busy. And we get busy with all kinds of things. There's a tendency for us to get distracted. And we get distracted by all kinds of things. Sometimes work interferes. Sometimes it's play interferes. We've got hobbies. We've got ball teams. We've got, you know, things that we like to do. Entertainment. And they happen to fall and interfere with the times that the church is gathering. And it's easy to neglect the church because of these other things. It's also easy for us to just get lazy. We go, oh boy, it's been such a hard, busy weekend. Oh, I think I'll just, you know, stay here. Maybe I can watch it on the video later. (laughs) And we don't get together in church. There are legitimate reasons for us not to gather as a church. An ice storm might be one. That's kept us from meeting before. It's simply, we can't get there. (laughs) We end up in ditches, you know, as we try to get there. And, And so that may be a good reason not to be together as the church. Slightly scattered hurricanes, you know, might prevent us from getting there. Especially if you're in the Midwest and there's a hurricane, you know we got problems. <laughs> Illness, sickness. Don't come to church if you're sick. You know, good point. Pandemics, maybe a good reason not to gather as the church. That certainly has kept many of us from being able to gather over the last year and three months. But it needs to be a priority. Not just I'm too lazy. Not just to not just I've got all these other things that take priority. And anything almost takes priority over church. If that's where you are, I think you're in violation of what this passage says. Do not neglect. Do not neglect Do not neglect meeting together. We are to meet together. You see, the one thing I notice is in the Scriptures, we are called to community. John Wesley, the great evangelist from the 18th century, said, Christianity is essentially a social religion. To turn it into a solitary religion is to destroy it. You see, you go through the Scriptures and what you realize is that is that we are called into community. When people became believers in Jesus Christ, almost immediately, and we find them in the book of Acts, they are baptized. Baptized into as a public testimony, expression of their faith in Christ, but they are also baptized. They are brought into the communion of the saints. They are brought into the church, into the local church. 
We are called to be together, to meet together as brothers and sisters in Christ, as the body of Christ. We are called to meet together faithfully and regularly and often. May I say I recognize that is difficult. It is difficult in an age where we are so busy. It is difficult where there are so many things that call out to us. It's difficult in a society where not only does the secular society not value church, but as we've seen, even the majority of professing believers in Christ don't value church. It's difficult. But may I say, that is not a new thing. Pliny the Younger was a governor in the Roman Empire, and he was not a believer in Christ. Matter of fact, he persecuted the church. He wrote a letter to the, the Caesar at the time explaining how to persecute Christians, telling how he did it so the guy would know how to do it effectively. In the process, he described for us in his letter to Caesar, he gave us some of the earliest, the first century descriptions of Christian worship. Among the things he said is he said, they are in the habit of gathering together in the early morning before it's light to worship their God. He said, and then they gather together again in the evening and they partake of a meal together, but not a fancy meal. It's a meal of common, the common sort, just ordinary food. And again, to worship together. I won't quote his stuff because I don't have that before me this morning. But the point is this. Those early Christians, at least in his area, were meeting before dawn and in the evening as it's getting dark and often late. You wonder, why are believers doing that? Not because it was easy. They did that most likely because nobody had Sunday off. Sunday was not a day off. That's a remnant of our Christian heritage, you see, as a society. Sunday was a work day. And most of the early Christians were not well-to-do. Most of them were common folks and many of them were slaves. The only way to go and worship with other believers is to go before the workday starts. And so it means going to worship before dawn. That just always gives me the heebie-jeebies when I think about that. I'm not a morning person. Would I get up and go to church if every Sunday morning it meant getting there before dawn? I hope I would consider it that priority. And then going back after a hard, long day of work, to meet together again. Why did they do that? Because they valued it. Because it was priority. Because time with the brothers and sisters is precious time. Time to worship God together is precious time. You see, unfortunately, most professing believers in our land don't get that. Most of our brothers and sisters in persecuted nations do. If you look, according to the polling data that they can manage to do with believers, and I, I saw some statistics this last week on this, in persecuted countries, the percentage of professing Christians going to church, 80, 90, in some cases 100% that they can find are going to church. Even though to go to church is to risk 
freedom, to risk being jailed, even to risk being executed. Many of our brothers and sisters in places like Ethiopia, other North and Central African countries, they never know when Boko Haram is going to come and bomb their church, run, strafe their church with machine gun fire. And yet they go to church every Sunday. Why? Because it's precious time. God has called us as believers to be in community, to meet together. Why? Because we need this. If we're going to live a vibrant, faithful Christian life, we need this, the text goes on to say, for motivation. Let us consider how to stir up. The Keith translation of that is, you know, we need a kick in the pants. Stir up some motivation. Hey, get busy. We got to get out there and live for Jesus this week, folks. And we need to be stirred up to, to be mobilized to do, to love, it says, and to good deeds, to do good works, to be mobilized to good works. And we need encouragement because sometimes, frankly, it's hard to live out there as people of God in a godless world. And we need people to come along and say, hang in there. I know it's tough. What you're going through at work, what you're going through with the neighbor, what you're going through in your life circumstances, what you're going through in your marriage, whatever, it is tough. Hang in there. Live godly. Hang in there and share the gospel with this person, that person. We need encouragement. We need to be motivated. We need to be mobilized. That's what happens as we come together as the church. Not only do we need this, but we need this in the 21st century. Say, Pastor, that's not in the text. You're right. But notice, it doesn't say we need this less as the days and years and millennia roll by. You know, now that we're two millennia away from the founding of the church, now that we are more sophisticated, now that we're more organized, now that we have electronic media, we no longer need the church. I can worship Jesus out on the hillside, just Him and me, and with my, you know, with the Scripture and my tablet, my phone. And we're good. And yes, you can worship Jesus out there, but you need the church. How do I know this? He doesn't say we need it less often as the ages go on. He says we need it all the more as you what? See the day approaching. What day is that? The day is the return of Jesus Christ. Are we closer to the return of Christ today in 2021 than they were when the church was founded in A.D. 31 or 3 or 4 or whenever it was? Yeah, about 2,000 years closer. It may be today. I keep thinking every year it can't be much longer. He says, we need it all the more. So, brothers and sisters, sitting here in the 21st century, we as baby boomers, we or you as millennials, you as Generation Z, we all need this more today than they needed it in the first century. At the very time when most American Christians are walking away from church is when we need it the most. We need it. We're commanded to value the local church. There are four reasons in that little passage why. 
There's a second reason I want us to look at, though, for why church is, is significant and valuable and important and why we need it. And for that, I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. And the point I want to get is this. As we go through this passage, the local church is Jesus' plan to accomplish His purpose. And again, what is Jesus' purpose in this age? Nobody was paying attention earlier. I get it. Okay, but So I'll review. And I said it two weeks ago, and so this is like the third time you've heard it. Jesus' purpose in this age is to build His church. The local church is Jesus' plan to accomplish that purpose. Let's see that here in the text. Verse 7. We're going to pick it up in verse 7, Ephesians chapter 4. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. First point. You have been gifted by Jesus Christ to serve Him. You've been gifted to serve The Greek here for this word graced is the word charis, and it means a benefit or a favor. In other words, Jesus Christ has given you a favor. He's given you a blessing. He has given you a benefit. So this grace that we have here, this gift, this gracious gift, is something that is going to be good for us. What is it? Later on, down in verse 12, down in verse 16, we'll get there, we'll begin to understand that what he's talking about here with this grace, with this gift, is, is a God-given ability to serve. It's what the Apostle Paul calls in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he calls it a spiritual gift. We read a little earlier in our responsive reading this morning, thank you Rob for choosing that passage, in Romans chapter 12, we read about this. One verse I'll just take us to from Romans 12 is this, we have different gifts. That's the same thing we're talking about here. A gift that Jesus has given to each one of us through His Holy Spirit, uh, we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we've been given spiritual gifts, we have different gifts according to the grace given to us. There's that word grace. We have been given to each one of us this grace, this benefit, this this favor. These gifts are a grace, they're a blessing from Jesus Christ because they will benefit other people and they will bring joy to us as we exercise these gifts, these spiritual gifts that He's given. 1 Peter goes on to instruct us then, talking about these spiritual gifts, as each one has received a gift, let us use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So God, by His grace, has given us a grace, a blessing, a a, a favor. And this blessing, this favor, is a gift, a spiritual gift, an ability to serve Jesus and to benefit and to bless others. And He says, since you have it, Use it. I doubt any one of us would willingly go step onto a plane and fly away if we knew that at any given time, 10% of the parts will randomly fail. 
just not work. You want to fly on that plane? Not me. You see, non-functional parts can be really a big deal. Sadly, in the church of Jesus Christ, and in most local churches, about half the people are not doing anything at all with the spiritual gifts God has given to them. Say, our church beats the average by a lot. But I don't think in our church that everyone is using their gift. But the Bible says, you got one, use it. Well, you start by figuring out what it is. You figure that out by start doing stuff. As you do stuff, you discover your gifts and get busy. There we go. That's point one. But there's more. We're going to pick it up in verse 8. Let's read there. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Is that clear? I don't have a clue what he's saying. Uh, Don't worry. I won't explain it all because we don't have time. There's a lot here. And there's a few things theologians love to debate. But we won't get into any of that because the main point is really not hard. The main point is all we need. So your brain doesn't have to smoke. Relax. Paul quotes here from Psalm 68, verse 18, which is talking about a victorious king who is returning from battle. And as he returns home from battle, he gives gifts to all of his his people. Now, the point is that Jesus is the victorious king. And when he on the cross suffered and died for our sins and was raised again from the dead... He gained victory over sin and death. And He has ascended to heaven. And He has now given gifts to us, His loyal subjects, the people of His kingdom. That's the gifts that we've received from Him. Now, we saw just in in verse 7 and here that Jesus has given each one of us individually, He has given to us spiritual gifts. But He goes on to tell us something else in verses 11 and 12. He says, And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. What I want us to realize is that not only have you been gifted to serve, but Jesus has given Gifts to the church. The church has also received gifts from Christ. And he has mentioned here specifically four or five people or or gifts that have been given to individuals that have been given to the church. He has given individually gifted people to the church and specifically names here five or four gifts. Depends on how you count, and we're not going to get into that argument. So I'm just going to say it's five, okay? Some take the last two and they put them together and hyphenate them, and that's legitimate. But here's the gifts. He says he's given to the church the apostles and the prophets. 
By the way, I'm just going to stop there. These two gifts that he's given to the church, I don't believe are around anymore. They're not operational anymore. And it's, you don't see that here in the text. So where do you get that, Pastor? Well, you just go back two chapters. In chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians, it says that, speaking of the church, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Jesus Christ himself as the cornerstone. The apostles and prophets were the foundation of the church. Once you lay a foundation, you don't need to lay a foundation a second time. The foundation is there. And then it goes on there in chapter 2, and it says that, that, that now that Jesus is building on that foundation, the church. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. And he says, we are living stones being built up together into a living temple in which his spirit dwells. Okay, The foundation of the church is the apostles and prophets. They are not around anymore, but they still benefit, they still teach the church because what we have is we have the New Testament, the written Word of God through the, the apostles and the prophets. Okay, So those two gifts, the apostles and prophets, there are three more. There are the evangelists and the shepherds or pastors who we also in, in the Scripture are also identified as elders and the teachers. And some, again, take the shepherd and teacher and put those together as one gift that's legitimate, but we're just leaving them here, five things. Why does he call our attention to these? He's, he's made a point to tell us that we are all, we've all received gifts to serve Christ. Why now does he single out these five gifts and put them there? Is it there to say that Yes, you've received a spiritual gift, but these are the really important ones. Easy to say that these are the spiritual elites, <laughs> you know? No, that's not the point at all. He singles out these gifts not to say that they are more important, but rather that we might understand their function in the body of Christ. Notice that he says that what their purpose is in verse 12. He says that he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints. There are five gifts with one purpose, to equip the saints. Who are the saints? Well, there's St. Joseph and St. Bartholomew and St. You know, Matthew and St. You know, can we go... And a lot of people think they're the statues, you know, in the church. And some church. Those aren't the saints. You know who the saints are? We go through the Bible and we, and we read the letters of Paul. To the saints at Ephesus. To the saints that Who are the saints? It's every believer in Jesus Christ. The purpose of these five gifts is to equip the saints. That's you, the believers in Christ. Here's the point. Those five gifts are not to be the professionals who do all the all of Jesus' work in the world, or even all of Jesus' work in the church. The purpose of those five gifts is to equip all the people in the church, all the saints, to then go do the work. Because we are all to be, as we'll see the next thing here, we are all to be serving. You know, the general model for the church that most people have is the guy up here is the professional. 
And the, you know, the people down the hall with the offices there, those are the professionals. And they do the work and we all politely applaud and cheer. We occasionally give them a little word of encouragement. Yeah, way to go. And uh, then on the way home from church, we critique. You know, pastor really wasn't on his game today, was he? No, he's kind of boring. Yeah, you know. Uh, actually, he's usually kind of boring. Yeah, he really is. You know, I really like it when, uh, you know, when Pastor Larry speaks, you know, or we like it. You know. No, that's not the what it's saying here. They are to prepare God's people for service so that they are equipped, they are trained, and they are mobilized as the body of Christ to go and do the work of Christ using their gifts, using your gifts. The results of that we find in verse 12 to 17 as we continue to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Really two results that I want to point out this morning. There's two results. The first is that they are equipped for the work of ministry. Every saint, every believer, every one of you is to be a minister. The minister is not this guy. Well, he is supposed to be a minister, but so are you. I loved it years, decades ago. It used to say at the bottom of our bulletin, it used to say, the ministers, you know, where you have the title, then you have the name, who it is, you know, Pastor Keith, you know, this, that. And it'd say, the minister, and it'd say, all of the congregation. You're all supposed to be ministers. So that brings up the question, what is the ministry of the church? Well, in short, it's everything that the head wants it to do. You see, it works with my body Whatever the head wants to do is what my body does, at least if the body is working normally. <laughs> if, it's not, if there's not something seriously wrong here, my mind, my head says, move to the right. And my body does. My head says, look at your notes and see where you are. And so we keep moving because we're running out of time. Yes, okay, got it. We're to simply do what the head wants. What does the head want us to do? Well... Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, Be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What is the body of Christ supposed to do? We're supposed to be His witnesses in the world to tell people about the good news of salvation in Jesus. What else are we to do? Galatians chapter 6, verse 10 says that do good to everyone, especially to those of the household of faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, right after verses 8 and 9, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. Uh, it's not of yourselves, it's a gift of God so no one can boast. For we are His workmanship, verse 10, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. We're to do good works. We are to bear one another's burdens, Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. We are to worship 1 Peter chapter 2, we are to declare the excellencies of Him who brought us out of darkness into His marvelous light. We are to be people who worship, who give honor and praise to God, declaring His praises. It's worship. It says there in Ephesians 2, just earlier in that chapter, it says that we are, that God has called us to be through Christ. He's called us to be a royal priesthood. Every one of you can say, you know, priest, you know, Here's Priest Elizabeth. Here's Priest Stephanie. Here's Priest, uh, you know, 
Every one of you is a priest. Oh, what do priests do? Well, they pray for people. Pray for one another. Pray for your neighbor. Pray for a lost world. They, they share God's grace with people. How do we do that? Will you show that neighbor who has given you curses, you give him blessings. That enemy of yours who, who uh, has brought trouble upon you, you do good to them when they do evil to you. You share the message of how they can know Jesus and have eternal life. That's how we are a royal priest. The results of each one of us being ministers, using the gifts that we have received from God and being equipped through other gifts is the ministry, the work of ministry gets done. But there's another thing there. We're there to equip the saints for the work of ministry and for, go on in verse 12, for the building up of the body of Christ, for the building up of the church. The passage goes on to delineate a lot of ways that the church is built up. I don't have time to go into those. Let me just say this. When it talks about the building up of the church here, it's not talking about building more buildings. Nothing wrong with building buildings, but that's not at all the point. And when he talks about building up the church, he's not talking about just getting more people into the church. That's good to reach more people and to bring them in to, to know Jesus Christ and bring them into the church. That's good, but that's not what he says here. When we look at what it means to build up the church, it's building to maturity. Maturity in unity of the faith. Maturity in knowledge of the Son of God. Maturity in Christ-like behavior. Maturity in doctrinal stability. All of that is there, but I'm going to move on. Now, it brings us to back where we started. What is Jesus' purpose in this age? I said it twice this morning. Does anybody remember? Build his church. Oh, good. I feel better. <laughs> A few of you have been listening. To build his church. What just happened here? It's being built through the work of the ministry and the building up the church is being built. And how does it happen? Notice the means as we finish up our verses here this morning. Verses 15, 15 through 17. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. How does all this get done? It's when each part is working properly. When every member of the body of Christ, when every member of the church, when each one does its part, the work gets done. The ministry gets done and the body of Christ gets built. The, the, the picture here is really pretty vivid when you put it together. A body suffers when some part of the body doesn't work. And young people, you'll begin to understand this a lot more as you get older. Okay? But you get it even when you're young sometimes. You, you break a finger and it's inconvenient. When this thing is here and you can't use it and, you know, now suddenly you can't do all the things you used to do, it's inconvenient, isn't it? Or you sprain an ankle 
And it moves from inconvenient to getting really difficult to move around. You got to use crutches or you got to hop because you can't put weight on this thing or it really hurts, right? Slip a disc in your back. You've been there? And it moved from difficult to incapacitated. Where you're just laying there in pain. You see, when a part of the body doesn't work, the body overall suffers. Every part of the body is important. Brothers and sisters, I don't need to explain it any more than that. This is why you are needed in the church. That's the point here in this passage, or one of the points here in this passage. It's one of the points in other passages of the Scripture. Talking about the body. You are needed in the church. And similarly, or conversely, and I still don't know which one is the right word to use here, but related to that, a finger or a toe or a nose or an ear, any part of the body, you take it away from the body. If you can take your finger, take it off, set it here, and I don't recommend that, but if you could, I guess you can, but I don't recommend it. Set it there. No part of the body separated from the body flourishes and does really good. You take your finger off, you put it there, and what happens? Not much. It sits there. And it dies. Point. That's why you need the church. Now, all that Bring it back here. It's worth noting that this passage is part of a letter, a letter that is written to a local church. And it's talking here about relationships in the local church. Because all these things happen in the context of the relationships in a local church. Not in some ethereal, mystical, you know, the perfect church out there somewhere, and I don't need the church here because I just connect to the church out there and, and all of these things happen. No. He says, it's happening here in the nitty gritty of the rubbing shoulders with real flesh and blood saints in the church. In the midst of an imperfect church, local church that is filled with flawed and yet redeemed sinners where life isn't always pretty. It's not always easy, is it, brothers and sisters, who have had to live with me? You've had to put up with my shortcomings and my failures. And I've put up with yours. And somehow in the midst of all of that, Jesus says, this is my plan to accomplish my purpose, to build the church. The grace of God working through the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling the individual members in in this body of the church. In the midst of that, Christ does His work and will accomplish His purpose. The sad thing is, is so many believers don't get it. 
And they think this doesn't matter. And they're so wrong. Every believer in Jesus Christ, I think it is essential for Christians to be connected with a local church, committed to a local church, and active in a local church. Not only because it's commanded, but because this is Jesus' plan for how He's accomplishing His purpose in this age. And brothers and sisters, if you're not doing this, you're missing out on the great blessing of being a part of His glorious, merciful, gracious, extraordinary work. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this teaching. I've kept us long and I'm so thankful that these folks are gracious. But this is important stuff. And it's exactly countercultural. Not only to the secular world, it's countercultural in Christendom in our culture. How sad it is that people who name Your name, many of them probably quite sincere, haven't understood this wonderful, beautiful thing that you, you have made in the church and this wonderful gift that you've given us of the local church, despite the problems that each of us brings here, it is a glorious thing. Many of us have come to appreciate it all the more over this last year when we were separated by... You know, we, we had to be separated for a time how more we've, we've appreciated coming back together. We longed for it. But Father, may we not only not take it for granted again, may we treasure it all the more. And may You, by Your grace, work in us and through us to grow us and change us, to bring glory to You and to impact our world for Christ. To not only share the Gospel, but to live it out that Your grace, Your love, Your mercy will be seen in us in the way that we love one another, the way that we care for others. So Father, thank You for this church, this local church, as well as the church universal. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.